This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And later, many, many years later, somebody decided to continue this story, which is from Genesis, of course, about the naming uh, of the animals. And this happened all in one day, and it established who was who, and what was what, who was over what, the relationships to one another, and unfortunately to the animals and to our detriment, the original story established man at the top of the pyramid and gave him dominion over every living thing that moves over the earth. But in this other story, this new story, Eve decides to undo the process and she, she decides to unname all the animals, ending with herself. And it's something that needs to happen, she realizes, to return the names of each of the, the animals to silence and therefore to free their beingness by unlabeling, uncategorizing them. And so she starts with the whales and the dolphins and the uh, seals and the sea otters, and they all take to their namelessness gracefully. And next, she unnames the yaks, who um, at first they put up a fight because they feel that yak feels just right. <laughs> and, you know, they've always been called yak. And it's the females that finally convince the bulls that, you know, from the yak's perspective, the name is redundant. So they don't really even use it themselves. <laughs> and so the males agree, oh, right, yeah, we don't really need the name. And so they, they let it go. And next she unnames the horses and the cows, pigs and sheep and mules and goats, and they all give up their names happily. The same goes for the chickens and the geese and turkeys and guinea hens. But when she gets to the pets, the problems start. And, you know, the cats, of course, they deny ever having had a name (laughs) other than the self-given ones. And no one has ever known those names except for them. But the dogs and the parrots insist that they want to keep the names their their, uh, masters gave them. And Eve has to patiently explain, you know, if you want to be still called Bootsy or Bubbles or Cisco, you can do that. But it's just, it's the, the name dog or rabbit or crow or mina that we're getting rid of. And eventually, with a bit of nudging, they too agree to give up their names. Insects and fish, they, they just give them up without a pause. And all those letters and syllables just disappear into thin air or into the waters of the ocean. And finally, when there's no one left to unname, Eve realizes that what she was hoping for actually has come to pass. She feels closer to them than ever, and she closer, and and they to her. And scales and feathers and fur, they're all there, but somehow they're no longer limits. They're no longer boundaries, contours. 
they're no longer lines that establish when one of them begins and the other one ends. And so all the animals move through the air and the sea and on land, under it, exactly as they were meant to do as one great unified body. And no one can tell any longer the hunter from the hunted. And the effect, Eve realizes, is even more powerful than she had imagined. But, you know, she can't in all good conscience now make an exception of herself. And so she goes to Adam, who's basically, you know, doing something. He doesn't even really look up when she, when she comes. <laughs> and she says, you know, your father and you gave me this, but... And it's been very useful, don't get me wrong, it's been very useful, but it doesn't seem to fit lately, so I'm just going to give it back. And Adam's still not paying very much attention, so he says, okay, just put it over there. <laughs> and when's dinner, by the way? And Eve, you know, she's a little disappointed. She, she thought she was expecting, having to defend her decision. She was expecting at least a little bit of fight, of, a, of an argument of some sort. And she just says, you know, I, I don't know, I'm going I'm going, and uh, take good care. I hope the key to the garden turns up. And (laughs) she's starting to say that she's going to go with all the animals, but just as she's about to say that, she realizes she can no longer name them. And that's when she realizes, you know, how difficult it would have been to explain herself, how difficult to show that there are times when silence uh, speaks truth in a way that even the most eloquent, eloquent words can't. And she realizes she can no longer chatter away as she used to, taking it all for granted. Her words now must be as slow, as new, as single, as tentative as the steps she took down the path away from the house between the dark branched tall dancers motionless against the winter shining. I've been thinking about silence quite a bit uh, lately and just my longing for it, my hunger for it. And uh, as I was thinking about, about this talk and, and writing this talk, I, I didn't realize how um, in one way not silent this week would be you know, all, the, all the work that would be happening and all the, the hubbub you know, that we would be finding ourselves in the midst of. And I thought, well, maybe even more reason to bring it to light, you know, dust it off. And as I was thinking about this, I remembered uh, this story, which is by Ursula Le Guin, <clears throat> and Eve's impulse to take those words, those names, back and to drop them or, um, if you will, invite them into silence in order to let the silence do the work, its work of unification in order to, to let it blur the boundaries, defeat the labels, unmean all the meanings that keep us apart and bounded. In the Kalita Sutra, Moggallayana, who was one of the Buddha's uh, foremost disciples, is uh, speaking really about this unification as it relates to silence. And he says... Friends, once I was withdrawn in seclusion, this train of thought arose to my awareness. Noble silence. Noble silence, it is said. But what is noble silence? 
And then the thought occurred to me, there is a case where a practitioner with a stilling of directed thought and evaluation enters and remains in the second jhana, rapture and pleasure born of concentration, unification of awareness free from directed thought and evaluation, internal assurance. This is called noble silence. And these uh, jhanas that he's speaking of, they're deep meditative states, which the Buddha described a practitioner uh, moves through in their, um, well, in the practice of meditation, but really that the point of them ultimately is to see things as they really are. And in the first one, there is still directed thought. There's evaluation, right? So we make a resolution to focus on our breath wholeheartedly to distinguish, this is my breath, this is a thought. This is a thought that is coming in the way of me experiencing my breath directly. So I will let it go and I will return to my breath. And the sutras say that this is like someone taking a a bath and making a, a bowl with powdered soap, and they're wetting and kneading the bowl of soap, letting all the water suffuse the bowl until it is, is completely steeped in that water. So it's active, it's engaged, you're, you're doing something, you're doing the kneading, you're doing the working of, your, of taming the mind, very much so, in the beginning stages of practice. But in the second jhana, there's a little less effort involved. There's unification of awareness free from directed thought and, and evaluation. So this is the moment in which you, even for a short moment, you become the breath. You're not trying to concentrate. You're not trying to follow your breath or be your breath. You are it. And you're resting in the natural, bright, luminous state of mind. Many of the Tibetan teachers call it. You're resting within the breath. And, and the sutras say this is like a river flowing effortlessly in one direction or like a, a, a lake that has no outflow and the water is just sl- slowly rising as water will when there's no, no um, place for it to go. And slowly this is drenching and steeping and filling the lake with cool water. But again, this is happening naturally, without impediment and without effort. And so this is what noble silence is, according to Moggallayana. And Tilopa, who was a 10th century Buddhist teacher, he was uh, Naropa's teacher, taught the six points for sustaining meditation, or six ways of resting, he called them. And he says, do not recall, do not think, do not anticipate, do not meditate, do not analyze, do rest naturally. So the first three avoid getting tangled up with past, present, and future. And I just came across this, this article about a man, a Russian man, who um, supposedly had um, incredible recall. He, he couldn't, he in fact couldn't forget anything that he remembered. And so he was giving increasingly long strings of random numbers, and he could remember them. He could remember um, a passage read to him from a book verbatim and, and repeat it. And what really what they found was that his power of imagination was extremely sharp, extremely strong. 
So he saw a number, he saw numbers as individuals, and he described, you know, uh, number one, I think, was a very thin, ramrod straight, kind of cranky man, bald. Um, number two was a, was a plump woman with a, with a beehive uh, hairdo. Actually, I think I made that up. Uh, <laughs> this was in the 20s, so this was before beehive. Some, some elaborate hairdo. And so he could see, he could see each image, and therefore that's how he would remember. And, you know, there's that, that well-known technique where you're in a house or a palace, and you place each of your memories, things you need to remember, in, in um, sequence. And you're, you're then making your way around the house. He would do that with Gorky Street. He would place all his memories along the street, and he would, in his mind, walk up and down the street, visualizing them. And so they did a study with another man who was in a um, motorcycle accident and who lost his short-term memory. And what they found is that not only had he lost the ability to remember, he couldn't imagine the future either. He couldn't, um, his, his power to imagine had been lost as well. So to me, that's so interesting. Past, present, and future are completely interrelated. We don't think about it that way unless we stop and, and look very precisely. And we hear this in the teachings all the time. Where is the past? Right? Where is the future? Where is the present? Then the fourth of these uh, six ways of resting, do not meditate, means you simply rest in awareness. Rest on the breath. Rest with the koan. So you're not fabricating anything. You're not adding anything extra. You know, that practice of, of taking up a koan and trusting that what you have been given is all the information that you need. And, and how often we don't trust that. You know, there's two lines and we think there, there's something missing. They didn't give me the information that I, that I needed. So let me just create it. I used to do that all the time. And that it would be like, why are you adding? You don't need to add. You have everything that you need. And I didn't trust it. I didn't trust it. And so this is a profound trust that if you're with that breath and you're think- thinking this is completely boring, trust that. I've always thought that you have to get to that point of utter boredom and stay with it because it's not until you move past it that something can open up. It means trusting the, the absolute completeness of this moment, of your breath, of your body. Do not analyze means you don't judge your state of mind, your ability, your, the quality of your zazen. You don't get frustrated when your mind won't settle. You don't get excited or restless or fearful when, when it starts to get quiet. And we do, in fact, which is normal. And this is saying, well, just stay. Stay with it. Don't judge it. Don't compare. Don't criticize. Don't measure. Resting naturally is exactly that. Resting in the mind as it is. There's nothing to create and nothing to fix. So if in one moment your mind is distracted, you rest in distracted mind. In another moment, your mind is quiet, you rest in quiet mind. You don't have to fix it. 
change it, control it. It's not saying there's no effort. It's not saying there's no concentration. It's just saying don't turn it into something that it's not. Mind is placed in ordinary mind. It rests in mind's own nature, which is, in fact, free and luminous and bright. But it's very difficult to see that when we're talking to ourselves, right? While we're worrying or planning or judging or analyzing. So in Zazen, we are training in the practice of being silent, of listening and seeing and feeling ourselves from the inside. And seeing and feeling and hearing our environment also from the inside. And inside is just one way to talk about it. But it points to um, the, a different way of perceiving because we're so often so out, outward oriented and we get lost. And so this silence is not just the, an absence of sound. Uh, it's, it's really uh, a space that is filled with presence. Right? So it's, um, I've, I've spoken before, you know, how the absence of... I can tell when somebody in the other room is on their cell phone because there's a vacuum. It's like the air, everything gets sucked out of the room. It's the silence that is very... Um, um, it feels, well, it feels to me exactly like that, like something's just been taken out of the room. This isn't that. This is filled, brimming with life. I, I was going to say it's, it's the potential for life, but it's not really. It's, it's form is exactly emptiness. Emptiness is exactly form. It, it is, silence is that life itself. If it's not the silence of repression or oppression. And for me, you know, silence has been the place in which I can most readily, most easily feel myself and hear, listen to myself, you know, the, the stream of life that is, that is moving through me and of which I am a part, but which is so easy to lose track of in our noise and our busyness. And, you know, even in a place like this that's, um, in a sense, perfect for, for silence, I still, I still crave it because there's still so much that we do and there's so many times when we're not silent, actually. And so I, I, I feel that I keep working, I keep um, practicing, um, letting it fill my activity, letting it fill, um, or, or the opposite, or, or resting really in that silence, in that space. Because the opposite, you know, that noise, it's how, how jarring it can be. And we don't just hear it with our ears, we feel it. We feel it with our whole being. You know, at one point I was sitting here in the Zendo, it was 7 o'clock, so it was a little before the evening sit, and somebody was, uh, a resident was pounding almonds downstairs in the, kitch- in the kitchen, which is now the dining hall, and I was sitting here and I just kept hearing, puck, 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 puck. And, you know, I, I, I withstood it for about 10 minutes, I think, and I kept thinking, you know, it's okay, I can, I can really just be with this, I can just enter this. <laughs> In my whole body, at a certain point, I, I realized, you know, it was kind of like this. So I finally went down and I said, you really need to do this right now. 
And he said, oh, no, I'm, I'm done, I'm done, I'm almost done. And, and he stopped, and, you know, the hearing of that, um, the sound of the fan, you know, is that, that the moment we turn it off, you feel it, right? You feel it in your whole being. I'm sorry that you have to listen to the noise machine, you know, outside the, uh, the interview room. Because I remember when I would sit here and I would hear it. And it's, you know, it's not a, um, an unduly um, you know, unpleasant sound, but it's this constant shh. And the moment you turn it off, something happens in your being. Right? And so to be aware of that, you know, that it's not just our ears that are hearing this, that are feeling this. We were speaking, you know, Kaz did a, um, a session with the residents on Zen chants, and he was speaking about Dharanis and their power, the power of sounds, the power of words, which, of course, wouldn't be present without silence. Without silence, there wouldn't be any words. There would be no music. And so I do very much think about it as, as that sense of space, and it's a sense of, of connection, you know, that we're less and less use, intimate, true connection, that we're less and less used to and, and are so, and sometimes even downright afraid of, and yet we're so hungry for, we so crave And there's a man called Gordon Hempton who he calls himself an acoustic uh, ecologist and a silence activist. And he's traveled all over the world the last 30 years uh, recording natural sounds, um, but also silence and, and cataloging places of silence. And he, he defines silence as, uh, you know, the, the decibel level has to be under a certain number for 15 minutes or, or more during daylight hours. And he says there's only 12 of those places in the United States, and none of them are protected. And so he's made it his life's work to protect these places. And he has one in Washington State, which is just one square inch, you may have heard of that, one square inch of silence, where he says there's absolutely no sound of, you know, the overhead airplanes. And this is deep in a National State Park, I don't remember the name, um, where everywhere else you can still hear, you can hear the cars in the parking lot, you can hear the airplanes droning above, and there's this one square inch where it's actually completely silent. So he's created this foundation to protect that square inch. <laughs> that is why, you know, we, we so often speak of silence here, why we ask, you know, that as we finish here, uh, the, the talk that as we're, you know, getting ready to go downstairs and putting on shoes and the residents are resetting the zendo, that we do that in silence, that we do it quietly. This is a designated space of silence, the zendo. And we'd like to keep it that way. Let's really protect it. You know, the, the cell phone fight, we've, we've kind of lost. You know, now everybody uh, comes into the monastery with cell phones. And we ask, you know, that you put them away for the weekend. And many people don't. And, you know, that's, that's fine. That's your choice. But silence is, in fact, becoming endangered. You know, it's, it's a dwindling species, if you will. And if we don't protect it, who's going to? And so, and they, they've done studies that, um, 
in places where there's more uh, higher level of noise, people are less likely to help one another. And to me, it makes sense. You know, not only we can't hear or see or sense what's happening around us, we can't feel ourselves or one another. We can't be intimate. And so you could say that the practice of noble silence is to be intimate, deeply intimate. And someone sent me this cartoon. There's a couple sitting in a restaurant. And she says to him, you know, this is the nicest conversation we've had in months. Let's not spoil it by talking. (laughs) (laughs) This is um, the coda to Letter of Testimony by Octavio Paz. Perhaps to love is to learn to walk through this world to learn to be silent like the oak and the linden in the fable, to learn to see. Your glance scattered seeds. It planted a tree. I talk because you shake its leaves. And this oak and linden appear in one of Ovid's uh, fables. And Baucis and Philemon were a couple, an older couple, and they were very poor uh, villagers. And one day, uh, Jupiter and Mercury um, decide to come to this village and really test them, test their hospitality. So they dress up as poor villagers also, and they start going, and they throw a storm down over the village, and they go knocking uh, door after door and asking for, um, for asylum and for food, and they get turned away time and time and time again until they get to Baucis and Philemon's house. They welcome them very warmly, and they're, like I said, they're very poor, they have very little, and they bring out everything that they have. They have a, a goose in the backyard, and um, oh, then there's a carafe of wine, and Bausa sees that every time she pours wine to her two guests, the carafe is full again, and she realizes, and she goes to her husband and says, you know, these are gods, so we have to, we have to actually um, take care of them. And so she says to him, go and kill our goose outside. And she's, trying, she's making noise. She's like banging pots and pans so they won't hear the, the, the goose um, screaming in, in the back. And uh, Philemon is, is chasing the goose in the backyard. And finally, Jupiter realizes what they're doing. And he stops them. And he says, reveals who they are. And he says, no, you don't have to kill your goose. You have shown more than enough that... Your, your goodness and your hospitality. So come with us. And they take them up uh, this, this hill. And when they turn, the, the gods that are not exactly known for their mercy, the Greek gods, have decided that to punish the town, the village, they're just going to raise it to the ground. And they do. They send another huge storm, and they flood the town and turn it into a lake. And only Baucis and, and Philemon are saved And then Jupiter turns to them and says, "Uh, I'll grant you a wish. What would you like? And Baucis says, "Uh, build us a temple here so that we can, it's a little strange, so that we can, um, uh, you know, pay homage to you after you've killed our whole village. (laughs) (laughs) Let's raise the temple and we'll be the guardians. We'll be the guardians. And Jupiter says, okay, and the temple appears. And then uh, he turns to Philemon and says, I'll give you a a wish also. And he says, let us die together. Let us die at exactly the same time so the other one or the other doesn't have to suffer when the other one dies. 
And so they're granted that too. And the years pass, and they're taking care of the temple. And one day, uh, Baucis is out in the garden, and she calls out to Philemon. And um, when he comes out, she's looking at her feet, and her toes have taken, have taken root. And slowly, bark is spreading you know, up her legs and going up her, her trunk. And so Baucis, um, Philemon just hobbles up to her, and he hugs her waist, and she holds his back. And they're completely intertwined, and they just look at one another and say goodbye. And as the story goes, the the um, oh, and, and and buds are emerging from their from their fingertips, and and uh, Philemon can feel leaves growing out of his his head. And um, the lake is still is still where, where it's always been, and the temple now is, is gone. But beside it are two trees, uh, an oak and a linden, that are, it's, their branches are intertwined as, they're, as though they're embracing. And hanging from, from every bough and every branch, there are ribbons, you know, gifts from passing lovers. And so that's the story that um, Paz is referencing. And it, it reminded me, this, this poem, his coda, reminded me that I had given a talk on silence about six years ago. And I had written it just after one of my visits home uh, to Mexico. And I had just seen a group of my friends. I hadn't seen them in 20 years. And so, you know, first they had to get over my shaved head, which I had at the time. And then their most pressing question was, if you can believe it, was, can you have snacks? at the monastery. <laughs> they were really, really concerned that I couldn't eat any time that I, that I wanted. So I assured them that, yes, I had snacks stashed in my drawer. <laughs> but um, then they asked me, you know, what, what are you doing? What are you doing there? And, you know, I mumbled something about, you know, suffering and putting an end to it and <laughs> saving all beings, I think. And afterwards, I was so dissatisfied, you know, with that answer. I mean, it felt so abstract uh, to me, and so not showing them anything about what my life really was. Um, And so I just kept being with it and sitting with it. And one day, it it came, you know, I came here to know how to love, to learn how to love, Um, which is really just another way of saying to learn how to be a human being. Not what the names and the labels say, but what it actually what it actually means to be a human being. And you know, the more you practice, the more you realize when you're falling short in that in that department. Um, at least I do. But also, the more I practice, the more I sense the possibility of it. So it's hard to turn away, and it's hard to um, settle, even in those times when you f- don't feel up you know, to the task. Perhaps to love is to learn to walk through this world, is to know how to draw a bow, how to wield a brush, with a kind of movement that is uh, still, that is silent, and it is all-encompassing. Right? So when you, when you see a, a true master, archer, or an artist their movement is indistinguishable from stillness. Right? And there's no, there's no static, there's no noise in it. 
It's flowing. Actually, that's extra. It's not flowing or not flowing. It's just itself. And the, the original in the poem in Spanish actually says to be still, like the oak and the, and the linden, not to be silent. But, you know, I think silence and stillness, of course, are also completely intertwined. And yet, in one sense, no tree is completely still or silent. Just so as the, the archer, the artist, uncoils from that silence, from that stillness into movement, into sound. And the relationship, relationship with a target, relationship with a uh, brush and the paper, the characters, the form, the mark, relationship with their own being. Pascal, you know, Blaise Pascal said that all of humanity's problems still stem from our inability to sit still in a room alone. And I've, I've thought um, often, um, and lately especially, that stillness and silence may be the two qualities that actually will save us you know, from ourselves, that will show us the way to harmony. Because we speak so much, you know, and, and often we know so little about what we speak because we know so little about ourselves. And, you know, I, I, I love stories, as many of, of, of you know. I, I feel they're a very important way in which we make sense of our world and we make sense of ourselves. We very much seek that understanding. And a, a psychoanalyst once told me that uh, the, the goal of psychoanalysis is to replace a faulty story with a healthy one. But that uh, Zen practice shows us that you don't need a story at all. In one sense, I think this is true, because the moment we realize that the self we thought is so, so solid, so real, is actually empty, then all the stories we've told about ourselves uh, can dissolve, or can be set aside. And on the other hand, you know, to navigate the sometimes or often stormy waters of a human life, it's helpful. It's helpful to have a map. And I think this is exactly what a good story, a universal story, does. And I also understand there are realms that not even the best story can penetrate. That there are places, that there are moments when not even the most eloquent words, as I said, can describe. That even the best names, the most appropriate names, are far from the object that they name. And so at worst, they become walls. They become boundaries and limits that define what something is and is not. I'm Shiite, you're Sunni. I'm Jewish, you're Palestinian. I'm white, you're black. At best, they point the way to closeness. But they are not that closeness itself. So that closeness most readily can be reached in silence. And the mystics across traditions tell us that. That's why I believe you know, that silence is, is the way of, of wonder, of humility, of reverence. 
and that it can be, in fact, very much the doorway into that single-minded awareness, the unification that Moggallayana was speaking of. Not so that we can erase our differences. I mean, that would just be blatant denial. But so we can see that difference is not all there is to us, not by a long shot. So perhaps to love is to learn to be silent, like the oak and the linden, like the maple and the ash, and the river rock and the sky draped over with cloud covers, and the dew shining on top of the, the grass early in the morning. And perhaps to be silent is to know ourselves as we truly are, which is indivisible. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.